that you even desire a relationship with us, that you loved us enough, that you came into our world, that you saved us. I, I thank you that you have done this work. I thank you that you've given us your word, that we might know how you're working and what you're doing. I thank you that, that your, um, your heart for us and your love for us is unconditional and that it's not based on our righteous acts or the things that we can do, but, but just on your absolutely and unending love for us. I pray, God, that as we, we read tonight, as we look at your word tonight, that you'll just speak to us, that you'll transform our, our views, that you'll transform our lives, that you will make us more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in John chapter 5 since last week, and we've, we, uh, we pick up really where we left off. We, we left off really right in the middle of a story. Um, but let me give you some context. Let me, let me put it back fresh in your head so that we're all at the same place um, and ready to move forward. Our time in John, over and over, we've, we've seen Jesus engaging his culture. I mean, you think about, as I've shared with you about engaging our culture and talking to people in our world and looking at the circles of influence that we have, ultimately that's what Jesus did every day. I mean, he was everywhere he went and everything he did. You see recordings of it in all four of the Gospels. You see Jesus engaging his world. And that's what we see happening in the book of John specifically. Ultimately, what we see happening in a, in a very specific way is Jesus begin to share. And, and as he does that, ultimately, he's, he's bringing light into the darkness. That's what John talked about at the very beginning of his Gospel is that, that, uh, that, that um, well, it was in chapter 3 actually, that that. Jesus was the light and, and, and brought the light of life and, and that men love the darkness. Ultimately, as I challenged you last week, there's, a, there's an illusion that we live in. There's a darkness that we live in. Ultimately, it doesn't necessarily look that way to us. It doesn't necessarily feel that way from our perspective. But the reality of life is that, the, that it's true and that we have this illusion or we have this darkness that we live in. And Jesus steps into that, and he shines this light that just chases that darkness away, that, that just, I mean, you think about a flashlight in a dark room, and all of a sudden you can see things that you couldn't see before. That's what's happening. And Jesus ultimately did that over and over and over again, and most recently we see him do that with a paralyzed man. He entered into this mess of humanity, into this place that most people wouldn't want to go. He kneels down before this guy, and he says, Do you want to get well? And the guy gets up and walks, and he says, well, first he, gives, he says, hey, and I really don't have any way to get well. And Jesus says, get up and walk, and the guy gets up and walks. And it's amazing, it's an amazing event. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you or I were to witness this event or see the results of it, we probably would be blown away. I mean, you think about it, a guy who has never or, or who has not walked for 38 years, all of a sudden, you see him there standing before you, holding his mat, standing on his own, taking steps and walking. If it didn't excite us, at least it would probably arouse our curiosity. But what's interesting, and as we'll look at tonight, what's interesting is this didn't arouse the curiosity of the people in that culture. It didn't excite them. In fact, it brought tension and controversy. And, and so... I just put that out there just so that you have an idea of where we're headed. I want you to think about tonight the different perspectives or different rituals that we have as we do things. I was reminded last week of, of how ritualistic we can be. And 
I kind of asked her permission to do this. I kind of told her I was going to do it. But the reality is we all have these little rituals or these little traditions, these, these, these um, I don't know what, what, what else to call it other than a ritual, but, but we have these little things that we go through and we like everything to be a certain way. Last week, as we were getting ready to go somewhere, I think we were coming here to church. Amy has this ritual that she goes through as she gets ready for whether she's going to work, whether she's going. It doesn't matter. There's always a certain flow of things. And I was in the bathroom last week, and I messed that ritual all up. I mean, everything was out of whack for her. Normally, she takes her shower first and then deals with clothes and ironing things later on. I was already in the shower, and she had to deal with ironing clothes and all of that first. And and ultimately, this is really kind of a silly way of looking at rituals and and traditions and and things that we follow, but the reality is is that they they can come down to even the most minute parts of our life. And ultimately, for her, I know that when she gets out of the house, you know, she may get ready. She got ready. She got to church. Her hair was done. Her makeup was on. Her her clothes were all on the right place, and they were, you know, she didn't have her pants on her head and her shirt on her on her legs. She didn't, you know, um, ultimately it all came together right, but the way of getting there was wrong for her. And, and, and so ultimately the reality is, if you'll stop and think about it long enough, we all have these little things that we deal with in life. Here's the deal. Tonight as we look at it, while this is just a silly little example, tonight as we look at John chapter 5, we're going to see that sometimes these rituals and these traditions are much more important, much more serious. In fact, the traditions and rituals that we're going to be confronted with tonight, that Jesus will be, was confronted with, really dealt with matters of life and death. And so it's important for us not to, not to just make light of them or to, to bl- br- brush them away, but to understand them. And, and it, I, I just want you to see it. I want you to understand it. I want you to be able to begin to identify in your own life those rituals, those traditions, those things that you deal with and that you do and that you follow every day so that you can begin to understand, is this, is this serious? Is this, is this something I'm counting on for my righteousness? Is this something that, that I'm leaning on? Or is this just a tradition and just something that I, I understand it's okay for me, but it doesn't have to be for everybody? So pick up your Bibles if you, if you got them, John chapter 5. We're going to pick back up in verse 9. I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of tie it in, and then we will move forward in the verses. Now John chapter nine, 5, verse 9, the, Jesus is telling the man to get up and walk. And he says, at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And the last part of that verse takes a turn, and it tells us something that's very important. It says that th- that day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And then it goes on. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. Now I want to just take a second right there. There's a lot of people who give this guy a hard time, and and, and I kind of see why. Because if you think about it, and you think about the way that verse reads, it sounds an awful lot like Adam when God approached him in the garden, and God said to Adam, Well, who, or, or why did you eat of the fruit? Well, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. And the woman says, well, the snake gave me the fruit. See, everybody's willing to blame. No, nobody's willing to say anything or step up and, and do anything, but we always want to blame people. We always want to find somebody that can take the rap for us. But ultimately, I, I think at the same time, we can see that, 
that this guy, if he wasn't blaming Jesus for him breaking the Sabbath law, if he wasn't blaming him, he was at least understanding that as Jesus, the one who told him to get up and walk, he had the power to tell him to get up and walk. He must also have the authority to tell him to carry his mat. And so I, I, I kind of lean towards the latter decision that maybe he wasn't blaming Jesus, but he was saying, hey, this guy healed me and told me to pick up my mat and walk. And you know what? I could walk. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm going to pick up my mat and walk. If you hadn't walked for 38 years and somebody told you to get up and walk and take your mat, wouldn't you do what they said? I, I think I would. So I don't, I don't think he was necessarily blaming him, but he was ultimately saying, this guy did it, told me what to do, and so I did it. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man said, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now, ultimately, everything that Jesus did, at least up until this point, was kind of secretive. It was kind of behind the scenes. He wasn't trying to, he wasn't trying to make a big ordeal out of things. Now, we know that he had been in Jerusalem. We can remember this or think back, if you will, to John chapter 2 or end of John chapter 2. No, John chapter 4. And, and you can remember that Jesus ultimately left Jerusalem because his ministry was getting too big. He was becoming too well known. And so because of that, he left Jerusalem, went into Samaria, and then on into Galilee. And now he's back in Jerusalem. And, and while he's there, he's still doing the same thing. He healed this guy, but didn't make a big production about it. He kind of slipped away from the crowd and just went on about his business. Well, pretty quickly, we're going to see that that doesn't stay that way. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now we can see that you know, Jesus finds the guy. He approaches him in the, in, in the temple, and he says, Quit sinning, or something worse may happen. It's not that this guy committed some sin, and God stood up in heaven and looked down and said, Oh, he sinned, so I'm going to paralyze him. Probably it was that this guy sinned, and in the process of sinning, this was a direct result of his sin. Don't think that if you don't tithe tonight, that God's going to make your car break down tomorrow. I don't think God works that way. That's not what he does. He's not playing tit for tat. Ultimately, consequences come from our sin, and, and, and ultimately it's more often a direct result of that sin you can't look at uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and say, well, that was such a sinful city that God just smite him. You know, maybe he did. But you and I can't say that because we can't see from his perspective. We can't tell everything that he does, and we don't know the reasons that he does everything. And so ultimately what we can understand from this verse is not necessarily that this guy sinned and God decided to do something to him, but ultimately that this guy sinned, and while he was sinning, he was injured and <clears throat> And he was, he was injured and paralyzed and was that way for 38 years. So don't sin anymore. Ultimately, that's the, the message that Jesus gave to everybody. He says, don't sin anymore and, and uh, nothing worse will happen to you. The man went away and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus. Now here's the result. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. I want, you to, I want you to begin to think about this because this is really where the point of the message is going to begin to happen tonight. As a result of what Jesus did in the life of this man, he, he came under great persecution because he was doing things on the Sabbath, because he was doing things on a day that the Jews viewed as, as holy, that they thought you can't do anything on. Um, 
and, and you're breaking the law. And, and so there, there comes this great persecution on Jesus. And Jesus said to them, My father is at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, here we go. This is what it's all about. This is really, really where the whole message is going to go. Jesus works. People don't understand it. People don't like the way he did it. And they get mad and they get angry and they start threatening to kill him. Well, I've never threatened to kill Jesus. I've never, I've never looked, I, I've never thought bad thoughts towards God. I would suggest that probably every person in this room, if you're a human being, has suffered something that's made you wonder why, or made you feel angry towards God, or made you, made you react in a harsh way towards God. Because it didn't fit your view. Because it didn't fit your perspective of the way life is supposed to go. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. It's all supposed to be roses and, and clouds and fluffy pillows. No, sorry. Hate the burst your bubble. It's not going to happen. We live in a world that is fallen. That is cursed. And we have the hope of God that, that one day we will be going home. Just like we sung that song earlier. That one day, and it's coming, I don't know when, but one day we'll be going home and we'll see Jesus on his throne and the last tear will be shed and the last pain will be felt and we will be home and we will be worshiping God, living out that eternal purpose forever and ever and ever and ever. But as long as you're here, as long as we're here, we got problems. We deal with a fallen world. Sometimes because of our own bad decisions and sometimes because of other people's bad decisions. Ultimately, because of this fallen world that we live in. But these people, these people, Jesus has done this amazing miracle. And they don't see the miracle. What do they see? They see a man carrying a mat on the Sabbath and breaking a law. Now here's the problem. I told you, over and over, we've seen Jesus engage his culture. We've seen him bring light into the darkness. We've seen him come into a situation and bring his truth. And ultimately, truth always trumps. It always trumps tradition. It always trumps mistaken thought. It always trumps. Truth always wins because truth is always true. It always has everything on its side to demonstrate that it's right and nothing else is. <clears throat> Truth always wins. And, and, and so we see Jesus now ultimately doing some amazing miracle, some, something that should bring him honor and glory and something that should, should have people at his feet worshiping. But because it didn't fit their perspective, they're angry. And they begin to persecute him. And then as they challenge him, he says, My father, who's always at his work. Wait a minute. Your father? Are you saying you're equal with God? That's blasphemy. Now they're ready to kill him. 
That's the culture. That's the place that Jesus is at. That's the thing that Jesus is facing as he begins to answer this question. Now, we're not going to read the rest of these verses in this book, but, but the rest of the verses, I'm sorry, the rest of the verses in this chapter, there's a lot of them, and ultimately if we read them all right through, it would just be a blur. But in the rest of this chapter, Jesus answers these people and their fallen views, their fallen perspectives, their, their mistaken views. And, and that's what I hope that we'll gain tonight. Because in their flawed view, Jesus brings truth. <clears throat> Let's think about the flawed views of the Jews. The Jews, first they attacked Jesus or were mad about the Sabbath view that Jesus took or that Jesus was, was doing things on the Sabbath and telling people to do things on the Sabbath. The Jews were commanded. This was a special day for them. The Jews were commanded to view the day as holy. The fourth commandment says, keep the Sabbath holy. That's at, at Mount Sinai. They were given that command. And then the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 17, 21, he prophesied about this and talked about not carrying a load inside the city gates on the Sabbath day. And from this, and, and because of this, as, as the intertestamental periods, or the period between the New Testament and the Old Testament, as this time of quietness or this time of time without prophets began and the time of rabbis uh, really began to flourish, they began to teach things and build laws that basically built a hedge around all the other laws. And what they did was they built their own network of laws that kept them from really breaking the real law. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> the Sabbath day was supposed to be holy, but in order to make sure that we didn't, they didn't break the Sabbath, they came up with things like, well, I told you about bearing burdens. And they considered breaking a law if you were to carry a tunic from one room to another because they considered carrying that tunic to be a burden. Now, they could put that tunic on and wear it from one room to another, take it off, and they didn't break a law. But if they carried it in their hands, they were breaking a law. You see, they decided that, okay, this is, this is the place where the law is broken. We're going to draw lines way back here so that we never get to this place. Do you guys ever do that? Have you ever done that? Sure you have. Every one of us do it. Every one of us in our spiritual lives have places that we're not willing to go because we don't want to get over here in sin. We don't, want to become a, we don't want to commit a sin. And so we draw our lines back here away from the sin and say, okay, well, if I don't do this, I can never get here. And I won't ever break that sin. I won't ever commit that sin. They also said it was a, a sin to, it was a sin to uh, harvest or plant on the Sabbath. And so they said that you could not spit on the Sabbath, or at least you had to be careful where you did it. Because if you spit in the dirt, and struck it with your shoe, you would be called a sinner because you were tilling the ground. You were preparing the ground for, for, to be planted. That, that's where they were going. That's what they began to do. The Sabbath, Sabbath day journey, it was a, it was a sin to travel, travel on the Sabbath. And so they decided, well, the farthest you can go on the Sabbath, let's put a limit to this. They say the farthest you can go on the Sabbath is about 1,000 yards. Now, <clears throat> that means that a guy could get up in the morning and could, uh, actually... I guess even in the evening of the Sabbath, he could get up and he could go out of his house and he could walk away from his house for a thousand yards and be okay. But if he went any further than that, he was sinning. 
So they all knew and they all had these areas marked off and they had an understanding in their mind how far they could go. Unless they tied a rope at the end of their street or at the end of, the, end of their place. And then it was seen as them enlarging their household. And so really they weren't leaving their house until they crossed that rope that was a thousand yards away from their house. You see, so this legalism set in. And ultimately, I want you to think about this. As the rabbis taught it, I wasn't there, and so I don't want to just automatically assume that they were teaching legalism. But as the rabbis taught it, it may have very well been that, hey, we don't want to break a law, so we're going we're to build a hedge around the law, and if we just stay on this side of that hedge, we won't break the law. But as time goes by, as things happen... As life happens, pretty quickly those things become normal ways of life. Think about it. How many of you would say that everyone in the room should bathe? Absolutely. In fact, we would be offended if people probably, we would probably be offended if people didn't bathe, right? Well, let me, let me give you this little, little bit of information. America's first bathtub was made in 1842. When they, when, they first, when they first came out with it, the newspaper said that this was a luxurious, a, a luxurious bit of democratic vanity. In Philadelphia, this was such an outrage. In Philadelphia, there was a public ordinance that prohibited bathing from November 1st to March 15th in response to this bathtub. Can you believe that? That's what they did. In Boston, bathing was made unlawful unless prescribed by a doctor. You see, they had lived in this world where they didn't understand these things, and and this is just the way it's always been. And so here comes a bathtub being invented, which is strange to me. I just always assumed bathtubs were, you know. Somebody invents a bathtub. Oh, you can't bathe. That's unhealthy. It's not good for you. Well, you can bathe during the summer months, but not the winter months. Or you can only bathe if it's prescribed by a doctor. You see how easily things like this happen? And so as these people grew up, I mean, think of this. Generation after generation after generation grows up hearing that, hey, we're not supposed to really walk past a thousand yards on on the Sabbath. So if somebody walks a thousand yards or more on the Sabbath, pretty quickly they're seen as a sinner. And pretty soon these, these laws that they put in place, these man-made requirements that they put in place, these rituals or these religious viewpoints that they begin to take on begin to become truth to them. And pretty quickly they forget about what the real truth is and they fall and, 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 and accept a man-made truth as their standards of righteousness. And so as they're standing here on the Sabbath, they don't even realize anymore how screwed, screwed up they are. They don't understand anymore that that as they look at this man, they are so blown away and they are so sold out to their religion that they are not seeing this man who's been healed, but they're seeing this man who's sinning. And they're lost in their darkness. And Jesus, he steps into that darkness and he brings the light within me and says, Hey, you know what? My father is always working. And instead of hearing him say, I am God, come to earth to save you and to show you what the truth is, they hear, my father, you could go so far as to say that you're equal with God. We should kill you. 
once again, showing their ignorance and their lostness and, and, their, and their darkness. Because instead of looking for a Messiah that's God come into the world, they had been looking for a Messiah that was going to be a man like David, who was going to raise, be raised up and, and to be made a king and that would lead them out from under the oppression of the Romans. You see, and it all stemmed, it all stemmed from one big problem. Look down at the end of chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles with you, look down at the end of chapter 5. <clears throat> Jesus, Jesus points right to their problem. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have your hopes set. Now listen. Here's what they've done. They've looked at the scriptures. In fact, Jesus tells them in a, in a, verses, a, a couple of verses earlier, he, he tells them that, that you've looked at the scriptures, you've, you've searched the scriptures, you've seen the scriptures, and all you've done is look to them for your justification. Actually, it's a few verses later. He says to them, he, he, he says, you've looked but you've only been looking to justify yourself. Why would you believe me? Because if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. You see, Jesus is present in every bit of the Scriptures. God had always been talking about and, and presenting to the people that he was coming, that he was sending his son or that he was sending the Messiah. There was plenty of places for them to see and understand Jesus. That's why the Bereans were so famous in the book of Acts, that because they didn't just hear Paul teaching, they went and they searched the Scriptures. Because everything about Jesus, it, it, everything points to Him. Types and shadows, all of the rituals, all of the laws, all of the prophecies, they point to the coming Messiah, they point to the coming King. But not just a man. They point to Jesus. And so what's happening is that they've got such a fallen and flawed view of the Scriptures, and they're selling their life out to this view of the Scriptures because it makes them feel good about themselves and about the way that they live and about their works and about what they think of the world around them. I want to take a step back, and I want... I want to quit talking about them. And I want to quit pointing fingers at them. And I want to quit thinking about them. Because we'll only find transformation in our own lives if we'll take time and think about how this applies to us. You see, these people have a fallen and flawed view of all of their traditions and all of their laws. They have a fallen and flawed view of who their Messiah was going to be, and they have a fallen and flawed view of the Scriptures. It was never meant to justify them. In fact, if you hear that verse again, it says that your accuser is Moses. It was never meant to justify them and make them holy or righteous. It was to point to their need for, their absolute depraved need for a Messiah. The reality is, is that true, that, that, that's true for us. And I want you to think about this. I want you, to, I want you to, to, to find these things in your own life. I want you to identify your own legalistic viewpoints, your own little rituals that you perform that make you feel holy. 
<clears throat> Amy and I have this little little way of getting off the phone. And, and ultimately, uh, it sounds really goofy when I say it out loud, but I'm going to say it. Ultimately, she'll say, well, I may be starting it wrong. I'll say I love you, and she says I love you too. And then something, something invariably happens, and she'll say I love you. Or no, I, I, let me get this right. I'll say I love you, and she'll say I love you too. I'll say bye, and she'll say I love you like I didn't say I love you already. And I'll say, well, I love you too. But that way she gets to be the first one to say it, and I get to be the first one to say it. And that's this little ritual that we go through. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the ritual. Here's the problem. If I hear somebody else get off the phone with their husband, or their, well, husband or wife, and they don't say, I love you, I love you too, I love you too, I love you. And if they don't do that, and I make a determination that that person's not loving their wife or their husband, because they don't follow the same ritual as I am, then that quickly becomes legalism. And I want you to identify that, not in some fun, funny little light fishy way or, or, or funky way, but, but in, in life, in your spiritual walk, in, in, in the things that you do, in the ways that you live your life. Do you, do you count yourself righteous because of the things that you do? Do you count yourself righteous because you went to church this morning on Sunday morning and you're coming to church on Sunday night. You see, there's all kinds of little things we can do. In fact, I know for a fact that one of the, one of the, the struggles with a Sunday night church is, is that our legalistic world thinks that church only happens on Sunday morning. I can't tell you the number of people, the number of coaches and mentors and, and people that I've sought wise counsel from who have always talked about the struggles of a Sunday night church. Do we view this as less than what might happen on Sunday mornings? Is this less of a worship service or less of a worship gathering because it happens on Sunday evening? Does it not does it not also demand our absolute best in us coming, not just to see what we can give, but to offer our praises to God? Does it not demand that we come into this place together to worship an almighty, all-loving, and completely gracious and merciful God? Absolutely. Because it's not dependent on the time of day. But I'm going to tell you that our legalistic viewpoints oftentimes cause us to feel like it does. In fact, I'd challenge you to look at the Bible and see that the first time that the disciples were gathered together and saw Jesus after his resurrection didn't happen in the morning. It happened in the evening. Now, wait a minute. They can't worship at night. But that's what we do. How about, how about the music? I want you to think about this. Just just a few years ago, you know, and we're fortunate that you guys have, have come into this and, and, and you, you're expecting things to be different. You're expecting things to be... To, to be um, you're not expecting your standard traditional church service when you walk in here, and we're fortunate in that. But think about the music. Man, there's a lot of places where the songs that were played tonight, not because of the words but because of the rhythm and the beat and the drums and the guitars, they wouldn't be allowed. 
because you can't worship to that kind of music. But did you hear the words of these songs tonight? Have you heard the words of the songs that Jackson has been picking to play? Theologically rich, God-exalting, Jesus-praising songs. Serious songs that if you'll listen to the words and you, and, and you speak them and mean them, I mean, my goodness, if that's not praising Jesus, I don't know what is. Think about tonight, the, the song about the raising the bread and wine. Well, what does that mean? Well, hey, that's exalting Jesus. In all my life, I want my light to shine. I want to exalt Jesus. He is the bread and wine. I want to exalt Him. I want to lift Him up. But because of a legalistic viewpoint, a lot of places wouldn't have this. You see, it's legalism. It's, it's problems like this that separate us from the truth of Jesus. And Jesus is coming to these people and He's saying... Forget your traditions, forget your rituals, forget your religion, and love me, trust me, follow me. How do we know we can believe Jesus? He begins to defend his point, and, and ultimately, like I said, we're not going to read all of these verses, but I want you to hear this. He begins to defend his point, and he tells these people, it's more than just your tradition and your ritual. I'm equal to God in this. He says that the Son does the work of the Father. In verses um, 19 through 23, he gives us five things that we begin to see him doing that God does. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what the father's doing. He says that the son gives life. He says that in verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so even the son gives life to whom he pleases. He says that he judges Let me find it. In verse 22, more of the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Think about it. He's up there. He's elevated Himself. He has spoken these words and he's, He's bringing this truth right into the midst of the darkness. And He's saying, this is who I am. He says that the Son is able to receive honor. He says this in verse 23, all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Meaning I'm worthy to be worshipped. You should have fallen at my feet when I healed this guy, but yet you argued against me. I'm worthy of honor. And that's the problem. That all too often in our legalistic ways, in our in our our legalistic perspectives, our rituals, and our religion, we're no longer seeking to honor the Son. But we're living in our little bubble. We're building our little tradition. And we're looking at ourselves and saying, look at me, I'm holy. Where is it that you're drawing your lines? Where have you built that hedge so that you might not become a sinner? Would you walk into a restaurant... And see a person with a, with a drink in their hand and automatically think that there's some lost person that needs to receive Jesus. If you walked into, if you walked into, uh, or here, here's, here's one. This is really going to challenge you. Something that my wife has shared with me recently. She'd love to minister to strippers. She'd love to, to figure out a way to, to evangelize strippers. 
if you saw her climb out of her car to go into a strip joint, would you automatically think that there was something wrong with her? If she can go in there and not lust, and, and she better not be, and, and not lust and not fall into the sin, can she not go into the midst of that darkness and bring light? Or would you automatically assume that there's something wrong? I'm going to say that in most churches, in most places, they're going to see her and they're going to blame her and they're going to point fingers at her. And I know that's what scares her. One of the things that scares her. But in our attempts to find ourselves righteous and to justify ourselves and to make ourselves holy, we have built these bubbles that keep us from shining the truth and shining the light. And all we do is begin to demonstrate to the world about how to live. And, and you follow these rules and you look like me and you, can, you can be saved and you can be righteous and you can be holy when really the truth is they must believe in Jesus. And that's what he says. He who hears my words, look at the verses again. If you follow down just a little further, he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not he who follows a certain number of rules. He who doesn't carry things on the Sabbath. He who worships on Sunday morning instead of Sunday night. He who doesn't ever take a drink in his life. He who never steps into a strip joint and brings and evangelizes the strippers. Those people are saved and these people aren't. No, he says, he who believes in me. He who trusts in me. Who acknowledges the things that I am saying are true. And then trusts in him and leans on him like a pair of crutches. And depends on them for his very life. That's the person who's saved. Not the person that follows rituals and religion and, and, and all of the different traditions. Are traditions okay? Yes. Is there anything wrong with them? Not until you elevate them to truth. Truth always trumps tradition. Truth always trumps tradition. You see, when Jesus began to speak to these Pharisees, the cat was let out of the bag. The cat was let out of the bag. The truth was told. And all of a sudden, he turned the world upside down. You hear questions all the time about this. Well, Jesus never said he was God. Well, let me tell you something. If, if the Bible was nothing more than a historically accurate book, if it was nothing more than a history book, if it, even if it wasn't the inspired Word of God, let me tell you that Jesus claimed to be equal with God. He claimed divinity in the words that He just said. You hear the questions all the time. And now you know Jesus has said, I am God. The witnesses that point to this, you could continue to read, about the testimonies of Jesus, John the Baptist. You heard John the Baptist's testimony. He is the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sin of the world. He says, but that's not the only one. Even the Father has, has, has um, or I'm sorry, not the Father. Next he talks about the works that he has done. In every instance except this one. In every instance except this one, as we read about the work Jesus does, it proclaims his, his power and it proclaims the truth, and people are saved because of it. As, as he saved, um, as he went into Jerusalem the first time and, and began to work amazing miracles and, and do amazing things, Nicodemus comes to him and says, I know you're a teacher of God because of what you've done. 
Then he turns around and he goes into Samaria. Or, I'm sorry, he begins to teach in Jerusalem. His disciples begin baptizing. His ministry grows so big that he has to leave. He goes into Samaria. He, he speaks into this woman's life as a prophet. And she is blown away by it. Goes into her village. Brings people back. And they believe in him because of his work. Then it comes to this point where he heals a guy. Tells him to get up and walk. And all of a sudden, his work isn't good enough. But he says, the works that I have done proclaim the truth about me. They tell you what I'm here to do. They tell you who I am. They tell you the power that I have in me. And if we, if, if, if we witnessed them once, if we saw it once, we would be amazed. We would be blown away. Let me ask you this. Maybe you've never seen a lame guy get up and walk. Maybe you've never, maybe you've never known a deaf person that was made to hear. Maybe you never saw a blind person that could suddenly see. But has he ever done anything in your life that you know is him? Have you ever seen needs met? Have you ever known joy and peace in the midst of trying times? Have you, ever, have you ever sensed this contentment in life that you can't explain? What has He done in you? It's that power that begins to demonstrate who He is and where He's from and what He's here to do. And not just the power, but then His Father also testifies about Him. His Father, the day He was baptized, heaven opens up and His Father says, This is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now maybe these guys weren't present, and maybe that's the reason Jesus says, you've never heard His voice, and you've never seen His form. These are the words that He says to them in this passage. You've never heard His voice, and you've never seen His form. But He testifies about me. And He testifies about me in His Word. And He goes on to challenge them then, about how they've looked at the, at the Scriptures, how they've, how they've viewed God's Word, not as a means to see God at work, but as a way to justify themselves. Let me challenge you in this. As you read this book, as you read these words, don't look for a way to justify yourself. I can remember when I first rededicated my life, I wanted to continue drinking. And I, I wanted to be able to keep on drinking. I, just, I don't know why, I just, I did. So as I read the Bible, I found ways that I could continue to drink. Oh, see, Jesus made wine. I can drink. And, and oh, look at that. Uh, Paul told Timothy to have some wine. Oh, must be okay. I can drink. See, and I was reading the Bible then, not to see Jesus, but to justify myself. Jesus says, look to the Word so that you might see me. And he who believes in that word, he's the one that's saved. He's the one who has life. He who, he's the one that I, I, I bring out of the darkness. So what do we do with all this? What do we do? I want you to honor Jesus. I don't want you to wait for the next time we sing some songs about Jesus. I want you to get up in every moment of your life. I want you to honor Jesus. I want, you to, I want you to honor Him in your speech, the things that you say. I want you to honor Jesus in your actions, in the way that you live. I want you to honor Jesus in your relationships with people. 
I want you to think about how he came in and did this. Now let's look at the progression. Because this is where it really begins to get applicable. Jesus came into this situation, if he lived in our, our time, in our culture, he'd be faced with the decision of, should I say anything? Because if I say it, they may not believe it's true. Because what's true for them, or well, what's true for me, may not be true for them, right? Well, wait a minute. Truth always trumps. It always wins. Because everything always points to the truth. There's a, my son listens to Lecrae. He's a Christian rapper. I love it. And I I got away from rap, and all of a sudden I'm listening to rap again, bebopping in the truck and everything. Not really. I don't do all that. But but anyway, I do listen to him in the truck and have a good time with it. And uh, don't look at me funny. I don't really do all that. I do dance around a little bit. Oh, here's a, there's a legalistic viewpoint. Boy, can't get one foot off the floor or it's a sin. Can't play cards or it's a sin. Those were ones I grew up under. So, anyway, he listens to Lecrae, and and there's a song that that Lecrae sings, and and in the midst of it, you have to listen to it a few times to get used to hearing that kind of language again and and hear that kind of beat and be able to understand the words again. But but I finally understood the words, and he's saying, he's talking about truth, and he says, "What, what if is true for me is not true for you? What if my truth says that yours is a lie? Is it still true? You see, you get into that argument and that circular argument and pretty quickly it all falls apart. Truth is true not because not because we said it was, but because it's based on the God of truth. And so we can come into this situation just as Jesus came into this situation and we don't have to be jerks about it and we don't have to be offensive about it necessarily, but the truth is that as you speak truth into darkness or bring light into darkness, it's going to be confrontational. It doesn't have to be a bad confrontation. It doesn't have to be mean. It doesn't have to be vindictive. The truth is, is that you're going to be telling someone that what they believed is a lie. But it's got to happen. It's got to happen. If I didn't confront you every week or try to confront you every week with fallenness and darkness in your life, you'd never be transformed. You'd have your ears tickled. I'm so good. Everything in my life is fine. But the reality is we all need fixing. And as we step out into the world, we can honor Jesus in our speech by speaking about truth. We can honor Jesus in our actions by not just speaking about it, but living like it. And we can honor Jesus in our relationships by not allowing the people we love and that we know to continue to live in it. Because as we trust in our tradition more than we trust in Jesus, we're being mixed up and we're being lied to I want you to honor Jesus. I want you to recognize Jesus as equal with God and as your only hope. Don't rely any longer on your little traditions. Don't wake up in the morning and feel okay about your life and okay about the way you live based on the very fact that, well, I went to church yesterday and I've got this community group that I'm a part of and, and I teach and I preach and I do this and I do that and I served last week at the homeless shelter. I want you to wake up in the morning and I want you to feel okay about your life because Jesus is in it. I want you to recognize Jesus at work in you. And I want you to think about what he's doing and how he's working and his power being evident in you. And I want you to study the scriptures no longer seeking to justify yourself, but so that you can see Jesus. The truth is out, and it's true. Jesus is God, and he came into our world, and he saved us. 
You don't have to... You don't have to wonder about it anymore. You don't have to be confused by that question any longer. You heard it from Him tonight. He is equal with the Father and worthy of worship. So worship Him in everything you do. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I just pray right now for You to work. I pray that you would confront us at that point of legalism. I I, I know that we all have. I I know I have them, and I know that every other person in this room has places in their life that they feel okay about because they follow their little rules.